Good morning, everyone. Very glad to see you all. Yes, good morning. Thank you. I'm excited. We are here, November 2nd, All Souls Day. I hope that you all will join us this coming Sunday for our Feast of All Saints and All Souls. We do those differently in the morning, that festive big celebration of All Saints, and then in the evening at four o'clock, we're going to have a choral service of All Souls, and it's a gorgeous service. We started this, gosh, I don't know, Catherine, when did we start this? Probably four or five years ago? where we started doing that special service in the evening where we were able to remember those we've lost, people we really knew, rather than just the saints of the church like we do in the morning. And so if you've lost someone this year or if you've ever lost someone and want to just come and remember them, it's candlelight. You, we actually light candles together during the service. We chant the names of those in our community who we've lost over the last 12 months. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful service. And so if you can make it, we'd love to see you. That's at four o'clock this Sunday in the church. It's really, really pretty. And then looking ahead at our own Bible study schedule. Oh, yes. We do not use incense at the four o'clock service. There will be incense at the 11 a.m. service for All Saints. So the 9 a.m. service for All Saints, no incense. 11 a.m. service, All Saints, incense. 4 p.m. service for All Souls, no incense. So, y'all, incense is so good, but don't worry about it. We're not going to use it at 4 o'clock. So come and enjoy it smoke-free, even though I, I promise you Jesus loves the smoke, but that's okay. Um, we want to make sure that everybody feels comfortable in the space. Believe me, I am... I have family members who will, you know, really react badly to incense, and so I am sympathetic. Uh, they realize, though, that part of what they immediately thought of is what they have been studying here in our Rector's Bible study, that there are ideas about grace and ideas about kind of doing things better than perhaps we would do on our own. And one of those stories just popped into her head, and she said it was kind of amazing that I hadn't really meditated on this or I hadn't really thought much about it in that particular way but here in this moment of real life this story just popped to mind and I thought that is really great because God's kind of breaking through and getting into us in a really good way and then the other thing that we do here as we study scripture is we actually deepen our relationships with one another and so I say this occasionally but I'm going to say it again for those of you who are here in person look around the room before you go none of us are that busy so calm down and before you leave introduce yourself to someone that you don't know and i said this a number of weeks ago if you see someone in this room and you know you're supposed to know them but you have forgotten their name that's human don't worry about it go introduce yourself first they'll introduce themselves because it, it's a knee-jerk reaction. If you say your name, they'll say their name. Problem solved. And then you can have a good conversation. And so before you run away, try and meet someone that you don't know or maybe say hello to someone you haven't talked to in a long time. Be doing that together is really one of the great gifts of our time here. And for those of you who join us online, you can talk to each other right there in the chat fields. You don't have to be silent and it's a good thing. All right, so let's look at the scope of today's lesson. There are four sections that we're going to be looking at today, chapters 18 and 19. The first is Jonathan's covenant with David. The second is Saul's first real attempt to try and kill David. The third is David gets married to Michal. And then the fourth is that David escapes Saul's wrath. So it goes, I hope it goes without saying that we have 
multiple instances that we will go through in the next few weeks of Saul trying to kill David and then David escaping Saul's attempts to kill him. It's very strange, to be honest. As we read through these stories, you might think David would just go away and not be around Saul, who is obviously trying to kill him. But it does seem as if Saul tries to kill David and David goes, oh, don't kill me. And then he doesn't kill him. And David's like, I guess we're good. And then he goes back (laughs) and then he's around Saul again. And then Saul tries to kill him again. Everyone's like, you have to get away. And David escapes and he's like, we good? And then David comes back and thinking, stay away from this man. Um, It really is quite strange, but whatever. Um, That's the way the story is told. And so we'll try to unpack that a little bit as we go. So turn to chapter 18, 1 Samuel 18. And we're going to start right at the beginning. And this is Jonathan's covenant with David. Chapter 18, here we go. When David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David, and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. As a result, Saul set him over the army. And all the people, even the servants of Saul, approved. Okay, we'll pause there. So it is important for us to unpack the relationships that David has with people as we go through these stories, because those are really the most dynamic bits of the story. David himself doesn't do a whole lot on his own. David is not a recluse. David is not a hermit. David does not go off into the wilderness to ponder things. He's with people pretty much the whole time. And so we actually, in the end, you may notice after the end of this year, we don't get a lot of interior life of David. Instead, what we get is a lot of David's relationships with other people. And so as we go through the story, we're going to try and unpack and turn around these specific relationships that David has as a means of trying to discover really who he is as we go forward. And so first we have this real key relationship with Jonathan. So at this point in the story, David has made himself known. He has gone and he fought Goliath. He's cut his head off. Everybody knows who David is. That moment when he killed Goliath triggered a huge rout of the Philistines. So remember, Philistines are out there. The Philistines cause a lot of trouble for the Israelites. And so by David triggering a stampede of, or a cascade of Israel's defeat of the Philistines, David's the big guy. And so everybody knows who he is, except apparently Saul. And so at the end of chapter 17, we get this moment where Saul says, who's that guy? And you think, what? Because they just had this conversation about wearing his armor. And yet Saul again says, who's that who just killed Goliath? And so part of that is for us evidence that you have lots of stories put together and nobody is trying to edit those stories. So you get the story of Samuel going to Jesse's house, finding David great. Then you get the story of Goliath coming out, David saying, I can beat him. And Saul saying, you're just a kid. And then trying to give him his armor, David goes to defeat Goliath. Then you get a story where Saul says, who's the man who just defeated Goliath and bring him to me. And you're like, what is going on? 
essentially, this is the evidence when I say it's lots of stories that were just kind of put together. Nobody is creating a nice, um, thorough or smooth transition from one story to the next. It's kind of like if a fifth grader wrote an essay, you don't get good segues or connection between paragraphs. That's sort of what this is. And so don't worry too much about it. it Saul's not really an idiot. It's just that we have multiple stories here that are just stacked on top of each other. What we do see here, though, is that after David kills Goliath and there's this trigger against the Philistines, Jonathan is one of the people that goes out and leads a group of the Israelites to go rout the Philistines. And so as Saul calls David in, Jonathan's kind of there as well. Now think of this in a royal court structure. We, of course, know that David will be king after Saul. But in this moment of the story, Saul's the king. And so who is king after the king dies? The king's son, Jonathan. And so Jonathan, at this point, would be heir apparent king. And so Jonathan is this kind of good military leader, the prince, so to speak. And so Jonathan is there when Saul calls this boy, David, to come in. David's still holding Goliath's head when he goes to see Saul. And so Saul has this moment of, who are you? What'd you do? Where are you from? And so they have this exchange. And when we see that Saul keeps David from going home, what that really means is Saul sees something in David and Saul wants David in his court. We've already heard about Saul being possessed by the evil spirit and David playing the liar and calming Saul down. So we have to put this story in context to where David has come into the court in some capacity. Is it because he was a musician? Maybe. Is it because he showed up and killed Goliath? Maybe. Is he the one who actually killed Goliath? Well, if you jump ahead to 2 Samuel, there is a reference to a person not named David who killed Goliath. Now, could that person be another name for David? Maybe, but could someone else have killed Goliath? And then hundreds of years later, when the story is told, that killing is attributed to David? Sure, it doesn't matter. Whether David killed Goliath or not, this is a story that has been inserted. And I'll tell you what, if it wasn't David who killed Goliath, it sure does make sense that this story does not flow with the rest of the narrative all the way through 1 Samuel. But if that offends your sensibilities, don't worry about it. Don't, don't ask me a question. If you need David to have killed Goliath, that's fine. David could kill Goliath um, and no worries. Okay, now let's get back to Jonathan. Jonathan is this heir apparent, the prince. But Jonathan is there to see Saul talk to David. And Jonathan is enamored with David. Jonathan immediately likes David, and so Jonathan creates this covenant with him. We do not get a reason for this. The story just simply says, because Jonathan loved David as his own soul, Jonathan took off his robe, gave it to David, and gave David his armor, and gave David his sword and his bow and his belt. Essentially, what we are seeing here is Jonathan's recognition that he is not going to be the next king. Jonathan, this is all symbolic. Jonathan is handing over these next king's things, right? His armor, his sword, his robe. That would have all been marks of Jonathan as the prince or the heir apparent. 
Jonathan is symbolically giving all those markings over to David. And in doing so, Jonathan pledges his loyalty and his love to David. This is a significant moment to set up their relationship. And we will see over many chapters that Jonathan becomes an advocate, really a champion, a protector of David. Jonathan is in this very interesting position. He is Saul's son. He is a great military leader, and he's probably a good tactician and a good politician. And he understands the dynamics of Saul's jealousy toward David. And so as Saul tries over and over again to kill David, Jonathan is one of the primary people, the primary person really, who steps in to keep David safe. All of that is rooted back to this covenant moment. Jonathan sees something in David. By the way, he's not the only one. We're going to see that David's kind of captured the attention of everybody. And so we know David is handsome. I mean, we've already heard all this stuff. And so David's a good military person. He's handsome. He's young. He's obviously a good musician. I mean, you stack all that up together and he would be a total TikTok star right now. And so, you know, David's just, he's gotten everybody's attention, including Jonathan. And Jonathan gives himself to David in a very real way. Now let's note something about Jonathan. I've already kind of said this, but we'll talk about Jonathan a few more times, but I just want to plant the seed here. Jonathan's a really good guy. We don't see anything in Jonathan that we can really criticize. Saul is very dynamic and problematic. David is going to be the most dynamic and problematic. I mean, you think Saul's done some bad stuff? Wait, David's coming. And so then you've got Jonathan. Jonathan is just totally solid. He is faithful, he is strong, he is a good military person, a good politician. He's obviously incredibly humble because here comes David into the court and Jonathan says, I'll give you all my stuff. I mean, you obviously need it, earned it, deserve it, God is with you. However Jonathan is perceiving David right now, Jonathan's humility is just overflowing. In reality, Jonathan would have probably made a really good king, better than Saul and David in some respects, because both Saul and David want to be king. And one thing is relatively sure, when leaders want leadership, you don't often want them to have it. It's the people who don't really want to be in leadership that you tend to want to be in leadership. I mean, churches are a great example of this. I don't know if, how often I've ever said this publicly, but one of the things that I figured out a long, long time ago is that I don't typically bring people into leadership in the parish who really want it. Because the people who really want it often become problematic. Now, there's a difference between people who have discerned a gift that they wish to use for the good of the group. That's fine. But the people who just want a thing, I tend to say, no, that let's step back and figure out what you want. Instead, I look out in the parish all the time and try to figure out who doesn't want to be in leadership but would make a great leader and then go try to recruit them and convince them to say yes. Those are the people you really want in leadership, are the ones that really don't want it but you know would be good at it. And Jonathan kind of slots himself right there in that category. He'd probably be excellent and yet he's never going to be king. And in fact, he's going to essentially give his life in protection of David. And so Jonathan as a character is just this wonderfully good person. And we'll see a few of those good moments here in a little bit. Now I need to talk about 
the relationship between David and Jonathan, because that has shifted over time as people have studied it. And so there are essentially three kind of major ways of understanding the relationship between David and Jonathan. So the first, I'm going to read to you a quote from a classic Hebrew Mishnah. So the Mishnahs in Hebrew um, are essentially like, okay, so I, I don't know if we've talked about this in here. Rabbis are different than priests. Rabbis are meant to be essentially legal scholars. If you have friends who are in synagogues, you will likely know that most Jewish congregations do not look for rabbis to be pastoral. That's not their primary good use. Instead, rabbis are meant to be really intelligent. My guess is you've never met a dumb rabbi. And so, I mean, Jews do not ordain dumb people as rabbis because their number one function is to be very sharp legal scholars. If they happen to be nice people who are pastoral, bonus. But, I mean, rabbis tend not to be terribly warm most of the time because that's not actually their use. They're really meant to be legal scholars. Priests, on the other hand, well, I should say Christian pastors, on the other hand, are primarily meant to be pastoral. Now, that's not every person everywhere, but one of the reasons why you have a lot of Christian denominations who tend to, well, what's the opposite of a rabbi? Um, I would say that in, for most Christian pastors, being very intelligent is not a prerequisite. How's that? Is that kind? Was that a nice way to say that? Um, there are many examples of very slick-tongued people who probably have some genuine faith at some point in their life who get totally off track because really they're not intellectuals. Um, they're just nice people. Sometimes they're not nice people, but that's a different conversation. And so there's a different character when it comes to a Christian church leader versus a Jewish synagogue leader. It's just, it's different. The Episcopal church tends to be a bit more on the rabbi side of things where we do actually expect some kind of intellectual capacity um, for priests, but that's just not always the case in every Christian church. I have said enough. Thank you. Okay. So in this Hebrew Mishnah, there is a writing about David and Jonathan. And so the Mishnah, and I quote, Whenever love depends on some selfish end, when the end passes away, the love passes away. But if it does not depend on some selfish end, it will never pass away. Which love did not depend on a selfish end? This was the love of David and Jonathan. And so it has been in Hebrew culture that David and Jonathan's love for one another is held up as this incredibly pure, good relationship. And perhaps even the epitome of that kind of relationship in the entire of scripture. Now, classic Christian interpretation really anchors itself on just friendship. Classic Christian theology does not talk so much about the intimacy of love that the Hebrew scriptures do or the Hebrew teachers do. It was converted a bit more into just buddies. 
Now, there are modern Christian interpretations that seem to want to apply something sexual to Jonathan and David's relationship. And I'm saying that to you because it's out there. And so if anyone has ever referenced that, or if anyone references that to you in the future, I want to have at least named it. There is nothing indicated in the text that would imply something sexual. What I think is interesting about Jonathan and David's relationship, and the reason why I think American Christians in particular struggle with how to figure out the relationship between Jonathan and David is because American men can't maintain true intimacy. It is a difficulty for men to do that in our culture. It is not in other cultures. If you go to the Middle East, and I'll, I'll stick with the Middle East because I know that. If you go to the Middle East, you find intimate, loving friendships between men easily. And by that, I mean men who have the kind of intimate relationships that often American women are privileged to have, but American men cannot seem to manage. And so if you were to see two women, if this were not two men in scripture, and these were two women described as having this covenant loving relationship, we would naturally just assume they were friends. But there is something about two men in this story that then leads people down some slippery slope into something sexual. That is our issue. That is not scripture's issue. And that is a cultural issue that is not present in the ancient world. And it's actually not present in a lot of cultures around the world right now. If you go to any Mediterranean culture, think Spanish, Italian, Greek, you've got Turkish or Middle Eastern, you have men who will have incredibly intimate friendships and physically intimate friendships. You know, we'll sit next to each other and we'll hug each other and do that kind of stuff, walk arm in arm, and they're just friends. And to American men, that feels so strange. And I think that I just want to name that as it is an American men problem. It is not scripture's problem. And so I don't think we need to go too far beyond what the text says. But I do want us to actually note that we cannot put Jonathan and David in a box of male friendship that looks like male friendships we know in America. It isn't that. It is a far more intimate, loving relationship, so much so that upon Jonathan's death, and this happens in 2 Samuel, this is what David says upon Jonathan's death. Jonathan lies slain upon your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing all the love of women. And so what David sees here in Jonathan and what Jonathan then covenants with David is something that is so deep and so loving and such profound friendship that it actually goes beyond whatever kind of sexual relationship that both of them will have with their wives with whom they have children to something much deeper, more like these, you know, it says the soul to soul. You know, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. These are like soul best friends in a way that we don't often understand. And so with that, I think we're good with Jonathan and David. Any questions or follow up? Yes, sir. Sure. So from the Mishnah we have, whenever love depends on some selfish end, 
When the end passes away, the love passes away. But if it does not depend on some selfish end, it will never pass away. Which love did not depend on a selfish end? That was the love of David and Jonathan. Any other questions or thoughts? Yes, so Mishnah is essentially a collection. Oh, I'm sorry, thank you. I was going there with the whole rabbis are legal scholars, and I never said it. Um, so rabbis are legal scholars. The Mishnah is essentially a collection of really great stuff rabbis have said over time. And so what happens with any rabbi, it's, it's essentially theology. And so as a as an ordained Christian person, you know, when I went to grad school, we studied a whole lot of Christian theology, which was essentially Christian leaders in history who've studied a particular idea and then written something really helpful about it. That's essentially what the Mishnah is, where rabbis study the Old Testament, study the Hebrew scriptures, and then whenever there is an idea in scripture, they'll make notes. If you were to go, and there are books like this where you can find essentially the best of Mishnah, and what that would be is like in on one page there would be a skinny column with the actual text and then there'd be a big fat column next to it with all of the references from very intelligent great rabbis in history who have written about that particular verse and so you might read one verse on one entire page and you'll have 800 words written about the one verse and then you turn the page and you get next verse and so you can actually go and really think of like a study bible that's kind of a rabbinical study bible where you've got verse by verse by verse and idea by idea and then you may have a dozen or two dozen rabbis in history who have written something really helpful about the way to interpret that particular idea in that particular verse and this was just one of those. That's the example of one that was written about their relationship. More questions? I think I just have a comment. Mm -hmm. You talked about the chosen that we love. Okay, and I forgot the name of the rabbi that talks with Jesus. Um, Nicodemus? Yes, okay. That's a very good example. Yeah. Yeah, so for Jews in the ancient world, if you think back to 2,000 years ago, so the time of Jesus' life, going to a synagogue did not really look like going to church on Sunday does now. It doesn't even really look like the way that synagogue worship is now for Jews. It was a little different because the temple existed. So the temple itself, the temple, capital T temple, that's where you would bring sacrifices. And that's where you would go and essentially meet God in this very ritualistic way. Synagogues existed. They were in different communities in different cities. And synagogues were essentially where men, it was always men, men would gather together to learn from the Jewish scholars. And so as Sandra noted, um, if you see movies about Jesus, um, in particular, she noted The Chosen, which is a TV series out right now, there are many scenes where the men go to the synagogue and the 
sort of the most learned of the rabbis is sitting in the center of the room and the other junior rabbis plus just other Jewish men are sitting around the room and they're essentially asking this, the greatest of the teachers of, in the room to interpret and give feedback about different ideas. It is not unlike what we, I mean, it's not unlike this, honestly, where I've just studied this for a long time. And so you all are kind of here to see what do I think about that? And it's not that you don't think on your own, it's just that you're kind of interested in maybe what I think about that. And so I do the same thing. I go and listen to people who have studied this for a long time. I want to know what they think about this. And so by learning from each other, you really do create a better understanding within the entire community. And so that's something you see represented in that synagogue style place. So it's not necessarily worship like we think of it. This is important to know because remember when Jesus goes to Nazareth and he goes to the synagogue and he reads from the Isaiah scroll and then he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing and everyone says, what? What's happening? Essentially what happens there that they're not explaining is everyone would gather together in the synagogue, somebody would read from a scroll and then the learned teachers would begin to talk about what this means. Well, Jesus at that point would have been a person who was respected and how he became that person, who knows? We don't really get that in the gospel lessons, but we know he was because he read from the scroll. So first off, he was able to read. Most people weren't able to read. And so he obviously was educated or intelligent in some way, which, I mean, you know, being God's son, probably. So he's there and he's reading from the scroll and then it would be natural for whomever reads from the scroll or somebody in the room who seems intelligent or educated to then say what is actually meant by this passage of this scroll. And so Jesus reads that passage from Isaiah and his teaching to them is, this means me. And that's when everyone freaks out and they try to throw him off the cliff and then he runs away and he goes to Capernaum. So that's, that's kind of what's happening there. And the background of that is very similar to the way that a synagogue worship would be. And that's really what the Mishnah is, is a collection of those kinds of teachings. Other thoughts, questions? Sure. But, you know, it was fascinating that, you know, that, that tradition lived in that. If any of you have been to Israel or you might go to Israel or you've seen pictures or videos from Israel, um, as you note from the Western Wall, you will, you will often see groups of Jewish men, pretty much always. Um, I mean, there are some kind of progressive Jewish women's groups, but usually not there. Um, and so you'll see a group of men and there'll often be a man who seems sort of senior. And that can be noted in many different ways. Usually if you look closely at a picture, you'll see someone's wearing clothes that are a little different or someone's hat is a little bigger or someone's locks are a little longer or whatever. I mean, you know, usually you've got some indication of who the senior person is in the group. And occasionally you have very small groups, three or four people of all senior clerics. But often you will see those groups where you've got a person essentially teaching a group 
it's discipleship. That's what it is. I mean, we, we as Episcopalians are like discipleship. Um, but this is very much modern in Christian groups. I mean, you look at any megachurch and you have discipleship groups where essentially a person or two have been raised up to be teachers for another group of people who are learning the faith in some specific way. I was just having a conversation with my um, youngest, Anne-Marie, where she said something about Oh, I don't remember if she's talking about Peter or someone else. Um, was, was Peter a disciple or an apostle? And I said, well, both. Because he was a disciple, then he became an apostle. The difference is disciples are learners and apostles are teachers. And so when the apostles, as we think of them, were with Jesus, they were disciples. So when Jesus calls the disciples, he's not calling the apostles. He's calling the disciples. They learn from him. Then when he's gone and they are empowered to go off and teach, that's when they become apostles because as apostles, they become teachers. So it really just depends on which role they are playing as to which term is appropriate to use for them. I wanted to tell you something funny. When I just said that, I saw like 20 different people put their heads down and start writing something. So I'm glad. There's a little nugget for you today. The difference between disciple and apostle. There you go. All right, any other comments or questions? All right, let's keep going. So we are here. We're only five verses in, guys. Okay, so Saul tries to kill David the first time. Kind of. It's not really the first, well, whatever. We're going to go with the first real story of it. So chapter 18, verse 6. So we are pivoting back to Saul. We're kind of beyond the covenant relationship with Jonathan and David. And we already know that Saul is not a great politician. He was pretty good as a military commander. He's been successful, but not quite as successful as David has been. And Saul is now starting to get scared of David. And so let's look at chapter 18, verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from killing the Philistine, the women came out of all the towns of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they made merry, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, Saul was very angry for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. What more can have built, what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul threw the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And David marched out and came in, leading the army. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for it was he who marched out and came in, leading them. So we'll pause there. This is not overly complicated. Saul is the king. And so what do you do for the king? You pump him up. The king is often needs a bunch of inflating. And the way you do not inflate a king is by having all the women come out with their tambourines and say, Saul killed the thousands, but David killed the ten thousands. I mean, that's of course going to make the king mad. And so here we go. 
Saul, in this context, his son and heir apparent has become best friends with David and given David all of his stuff. The Spirit of God has departed from Saul, and he's been filled with an evil spirit from God. This is the second time this has happened. It's going to happen again. And Saul tries to put David in harm's way, going out and leading the army so that perhaps he'll just die in battle. But David continues to have success upon success. So Saul really is coming apart here. Saul, he is, his insecurity is beginning to flame up. Of course, the way the storyteller tells it, the Spirit of God is now on David. And not only has the Spirit departed Saul, but Saul is filled with an evil spirit. Now, this really does seem unfair. I mean, if we look at this at face value, Saul doesn't even have a chance. It's not as if Saul is just left to his own devices and he is making mistakes. An evil spirit fills him up. And not only an evil spirit, an evil spirit from God. So the way the storyteller is telling the story, it's as if God is up there playing chess and he's really putting Saul in a bad position. Saul really can't overcome this. Even the greatest human is not going to overcome God's evil spirit. We can take issue with why God would fill Saul with an evil spirit. But before you ask, what is my response? It's not that God actually did that. It's that the storyteller told the story that way. And so resist trying to figure out why God is somehow being so mean and instead ask, why does the storyteller seem to position God in this way? We know God through Jesus. This is not the way God functions. But of course the people thought it was. And why is that? I do not know the answer. But as I think about this, about that question, why would the storyteller make God out to be sort of mean? I mean, really kind of conniving. I think it's because essentially these people are trying to figure out why people do bad stuff. Because do remember, they are either in or they've just gotten out of exile. And by going into exile, they've had to wrestle with their own imperfections. And I'm not sure if you know this about human beings, but we hate to admit imperfection. And so they have to figure something out. I mean, they can't necessarily just own it. They have to figure out why they would be so bad. Their answer actually begins to form that God influences people one way or the other. You don't want one of God's evil spirits. You want God's good spirit. And that kind of disconnection of God, or uh, that's not the right way to put it, that understanding that God either blesses or curses is something that Jesus cleans up. But at this point in time, people understand God is kind of like, you know, puffing someone up or going pew pew with lightning or whatever. And so that sort of idea is problematic for us today. But it, the storyteller tells the story this way. Any questions or clarity about that? Before we move on. All right. Let's keep going. Section three today, we're going to talk about David getting married to Michal. Saul tries to get David to marry one of his daughters. I suppose the way we could understand this 
is that Saul has tried to put David in harm's way so he would die out in battle. That is not working. And so now it might end up being that Saul's trying to bring his enemies close, right? Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And so Saul's trying to suck David into his family now, not just kind of into the court, but now get David even closer. Saul's intention is to give him one of his daughters, but it doesn't quite work out that way. The first daughter is married off to someone else. And it's very likely that the first daughter, Merib, we're not going to read that section, but kind of in between what I just read, Merib is given to promise to David, but somehow before David can marry her, she's given to someone else. That's interesting to note, but it doesn't clarify, the scripture doesn't clarify what happened there. I think in the section I'm about to read to you, it's decently easy for us to draw a line to connect the dots that David probably was unable to produce a gift, a dowry of sorts, for Saul in order to marry Merib. So then daughter number two comes along and Saul figures out how to solve that problem because he really does want David to marry one of his daughters and it just didn't work out the first time. So now we're getting an attempt number two for Saul to marry off one of his daughters to David. So look at chapter 18, verse 20. We're going to start at verse 20, and just because it's good, I'm going to read it all. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. Saul was told, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, see, the king is delighted with you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants reported these words to David in private. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become this king's son-in-law, seeing that I am a poor man and of no repute? The servants of Saul told him, this is what David said. Then Saul said, thus you shall say to David, the king desires no marriage present except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that they may be avenged on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, David was well pleased to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David rose and went along with his men and killed 100 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Saul gave him his daughter Michal as a wife. But when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that Saul's daughter Michal loved him, Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy from that time forward. So as I noted, Merib didn't work out. Michal worked out because David was able to go and kill 100 of the Philistines and bring their foreskins as a dowry gift to Saul for his daughter's hands. That's romantic. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you. That's, you know, it is what it is. There's, you know, the Bible really does love foreskin. So that's all I'm going to say. So we have a moment here where, where Michal, who already loves David, wants to marry him. Saul tries to trap David and get him killed by the Philistines. But David triumphs once again and marries one of Saul's daughters. Now, Michal loves 
David, just like her brother Jonathan loves David. So we've already talked about the dynamic of the king's son loving David. Now another one of the king's children loves David. And Saul is slowly but surely losing this political battle. He sees David as a threat, and one by one his children are being picked off to become David's advocates. And this is really going to throw Saul into a tizzy. Saul is ultimately not going to be able to recover from this. And we see again, I mean, you look at verse 29, Saul was still more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy from that time forward. Duh. I mean, we've said this like four times at this point. And so again, the storyteller is not editing themselves very well because essentially one story after another is the same. Saul wants David gone. David somehow triumphs. Saul gets mad and angry at David and he is now his enemy. Then it's like we start over again and it's a new version of that same story and we are in a loop of Saul and David's relationship. The irony here is quite thick. Saul, as the storyteller says, realizes that the Lord is with David. And so Saul is more afraid of him. Think about that. That is a very interesting way to tell this story. One might think that Saul sees that the spirit of the Lord is with David and is jealous or wants to get the spirit back. But to fear God's spirit really lets us in to Saul having been completely flipped. Remember, Saul had the spirit of God. Samuel blessed Saul, anointed Saul, the spirit fell on Saul, but then God took that spirit away. It is an interesting note that we, I've been asked many times in my career um, whether the Holy Spirit existed in the Old Testament. This is that. The way that Christians have explained the Holy Spirit, because we have in our own story, right, the Pentecost story, where everyone's kind of huddled up in the room, and then the tongues of fire fall on the, on the disciples, and they go out and they begin to preach and teach and speak in tongues and whatever. And so it does appear to us, as Jesus said, when I am gone, I will send the advocate to be with you. I will send the Spirit to be with you. Almost as if the Spirit hasn't been there. And now after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, then the Spirit comes and now the Spirit is with us. So was the Spirit there before? The difference is, in the Old Testament, God's Spirit is always episodic. People receive the Spirit for a moment to do something, and then the Spirit is gone. And we see that over and over in these verses, where God's Spirit fills a person up, they do something exceptional, and then the Spirit is gone. The difference after Jesus is that God's Spirit comes down and dwells in us for good. We don't have the Spirit and then not have the Spirit. As disciples, as people baptized into discipleship, the Spirit is in us. And that's how things shift from essentially before Jesus to after Jesus. All right, questions about, yes. question is, would Saul have had more than one wife? I would love to tell you I actually know that answer, and I cannot think off the top of my head whether he did have more than one wife. He had like eight or nine kids. Um, I do know that, but I don't remember if he had more than one wife. And I don't remember actually if it says that he had children with more than one woman. 
Anybody better than me? Remember that? No? I'll look that up and answer. But he didn't have like, Solomon had all the concubines. I mean, Solomon had like, you know, a million children um, because he had children with all kinds of women. And so at some point here, we go from Saul who only had maybe eight or nine kids. I'm, I'm sorry, only, um, but who had like eight or nine kids. I know. Um, with maybe the same woman, I don't remember, I'll look it up. To David, who has children with multiple women, but it's not like it's a hundred women. Then you get to Solomon, who has children, literally, I mean, dozens, if not a hundred plus women. I mean, he just, that's kind of the structure that he lived under. So I don't, I can't really tell you why that shift happens, but Solomon's like a baby machine. Um, and so that ultimately causes a lot of problems because David doesn't have a lot of kids. I mean, he, he does have a material, I mean, a dozen or so kids, so it's not like it's nothing. But those kids kind of fight amongst themselves and they try to overthrow David, and we'll get to those stories because they're great. Solomon almost has so many kids that it's too diffuse. And that's part of the reason why the kingdom splits in the end is because there are too many people who had a claim to the throne, so to speak, that the kingdoms then divide in the north and south after Solomon's death. And you have lines that claim the kingship go in each direction. And then it just declines into the exile. I'll look that up. Other question? Yes. Sorry, I couldn't hear because of this. Thank you. Okay. Snare was the word I missed. Um, yes. So we hear in that story that Saul is trying to be politically savvy around marrying off one of his daughters. Because as a parent might think... If I give my child to my enemy, the child still remains loyal to me. I'm not sure why a parent would think that, because I think that, un oh, how, ooh, I'm a, hold on. I'm gonna make sure I don't get myself in trouble by saying it this way. Um, I think that ideally, you don't have to choose between people you love. I mean, that's always the best of things. Um, but of course, we have here a situation where a father tries to get his daughter to marry a man she loves in order to benefit him. Well, that's not going to work. Not for most marriages. I mean, most marriages, you're going to ultimately choose your spouse if your parent makes you make a choice. And so that's why kind of as a parent, don't do that. Duh. Um, and so sorry for those of you who may have done that with your children and that backfired. Um, but I think, you know, that's kind of the normal course of things. You're, when you get married, you sort of yoke yourself to that person. And parents really shouldn't force their children to make some sort of terrible choice between them or their child's spouse. And I think that Saul in his immaturity or in his um, just bad political decision thought that if he got his daughter to marry David, he would be in and kind of in the inner circle with David. Now, we have plenty of examples of where 
people are um, backstabbed by their spouse. So, I mean, we've talked about those in here and other stories. So it's not like that never happens. But Michal is said to have loved David before she was offered to David as a wife. And so I think her genuine affection for David predates their marriage. So their marriage only solidifies that affection. And she is now loyal to David and not loyal to Saul, even though Saul probably thought she would remain loyal to him. And that is likely beyond just a father-child issue. That's probably more of a king-child issue where you think, I'm the king, so you remain loyal to the king. It just didn't work out that way. Yeah. Royalty has done that for centuries. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, this is not an unusual royal pattern. Um, I mean, for most royals, their children are strategic. And so you make strategic alliances through marriage. This is not unusual. And it's not modern. It's been happening forever and ever. I mean, unified kingdoms often come because two monarchs marry their children off. And it makes the entirety stronger. All right, let's see. I... Mm -mm -mm. Let's do just a quick little David escapes Saul. So in chapter 19, I, I know I have not even gotten to chapter 19 yet. Um, we are finally here. Chapter 19 is essentially one big sweep of David escaping Saul. And so what I'm going to do is, oh my gosh, I have so many chapters next week. Okay, we'll see. Um, <sighs> Saul is afraid of David and his fears get the better of him. And so as we note, He's trying to get his kids to kill David. So to close out today, let me just read this passage from chapter 19, and we'll discuss it at the beginning of next week. So just turn to chapter 19. I'm going to read a dozen verses or so because it's just two good stories back to back. Chapter 19, verse 1. Saul spoke with his son Jonathan and with all his servants about killing David. But Saul's son Jonathan took great delight in David. Jonathan told David, My father Saul is trying to kill you. Therefore, be on guard tomorrow morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. If I learn anything, I will tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father Saul, saying to him, The king should not sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you and because his deeds have been of good service to you. For he took his life in his hand when he attacked the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it, and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against an innocent person by killing David without cause? Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and related all these things to him. Jonathan then brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Second story. Again there was war, and David went out to fight the Philistines. He launched a heavy attack on them, so that they fled before him. Then an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand while David was playing music. Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. We heard that before. But he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall. David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to keep watch over him, planning to kill him in the morning. David's wife, Michal, told him, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window. He fled away and escaped. 
Michal took an idol and laid it on the bed. She put a net of goat's hair on its head and covered it with the clothes. So apparently David's hair needed some conditioner. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David for themselves. He said, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. When the messengers came in, the idol was in the bed with the covering of goat's hair on its head. Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So in both of these instances, Saul is trying to use his children to get at David. And in both instances, Saul's children are preferencing their relationship to David over their relationship to their father. We're going to pause there and we're going to tie that up next week as we press on over the next few chapters. Thank you all. And remember, if you've got questions, send them over email to me and we'll get to them next week. Thank you all. Have a great day.